All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody. It is October, and though the pandemic appears to be part of everyday life now, fall is officially in the air. Football is back. Baseball is in full postseason swing. We just saw the Lakers finish off the NBA season as champions, and the election is looking recognizable again, back on the campaign trail doing things. I am your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me, as always, is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, which do you think is the bigger debacle, the first presidential debate or the NFC East? <laughs> yeah, good question. And uh, I don't know, the first presidential debate seems so long ago. There have been so many things that <laughs> know. Have, um, happen in between. But the great thing about the NFC East is each weekend they get to remind you how bad they are. They, they, so. they continue to be terrible. Yeah, I don't know if you watched that, uh, that Dallas Giants game uh, uh, for us. That it was, was awful. But it, it was, it struck me, it was hilarious. The Giants finally played amazing football when they were trying to keep one of their division rivals from, from winning again. None of them can catch a break. They're all, they're all particularly terrible. Yeah, and poor Dak Prescott. I mean, I just felt so bad for that guy. I mean, he's a competitor. It's, the season was going pretty, pretty rough already. And uh, to go out like that, you just, you just hate to see that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I noticed that we haven't talked about the Eagles at all, but we can keep it that way. <laughs> Good deal. We've got another great guest this month. We say that every month, but we mean it every month. And Glenn, if you will please do the honors. Yeah, and indeed this month it truly is an honor because we are joined by Cheryl LaFleur. I think most folks who listen to this podcast, Cheryl's a very familiar name to everyone. Cheryl was, let's see if I can get this right, Cheryl, commissioner turned acting chairman, turned chairman, turned commissioner, turned acting chairman, turned commissioner. So Perfect. Is that right? Okay. So uh, Cheryl's indeed the ultimate utility infielder at FERC. She can play all the positions and play them very, very well. Uh, She served at FERC from 2010 until last August of 2019. Before her time at FERC, she was executive vice president and acting CEO of National Grid, a company that's familiar to many of us on this podcast. Uh, she got her law degree from Harvard and her undergrad from Princeton. She's been a, always a pleasure to work with over the years. I have no doubt about it. If there was a Regulators Hall of Fame, Cheryl would be on that first ballot. So, Cheryl, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of topics to discuss, but the most important one that we got to get right out the gate is we just took some shots at the NFC East and, and rightfully so, but they've been, you know, arguably pretty horrible for a while, uh, aside from a sorted number of shocking postseason runs. But if you want to talk about the biggest fall from grace in recent memory, what's up with the Patriots, Cheryl? Looking up at the once lowly bills for the first time in a long time, TB12 and Gronk are, both took their party to the beach in Florida. Cam and Gilmore have COVID. Will you ever feel the warmth of the postseason again, or is this just the beginning of your return to mediocrity after <laughs> so long? Well, what a question. Well, I was a Patriots fan long before they were good. Two and 12. And so my loyalty is unshakable. Tom Brady... Obviously, I think he's the greatest of all time. He gave us 19 amazing years. 
But candidly, he didn't seem like he really wanted to be in New England the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. missing organized team activities, getting into squabbles about his crazy trainer, and really not bothering to bond with the new young receivers. And Cam Newton has come in with a high-level enthusiasm. He's really eager to be there. I think he's working really well with a lot of young players they have on the team. So I'm optimistic about the future. As far as the whole NFL this year, I'm trying to take a philosophical approach. I actually said to my family yesterday, remember back in the spring when we had no sports whatsoever and we were so excited just to see Tom Brady and Peyton Manning play golf on TV. <laughs> That's true. That's so if they point. said at that time, well, you know, the NFL is going to try to throw together some games. They might not be every week and it might be different people some weeks than you know, and they might change up a lot, but we're going to throw together as many games as we can around COVID. We would have said, That's awesome. We would love that. And so I don't know whether they're going to finish the season or what's going to happen, but I'm just trying to enjoy it when they're on. Yeah, there you go. I can remember taking great satisfaction seeing Tom Brady slice multiple drives into the woods (laughs) of Florida. Well, slice his pants too, if I remember correctly. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Good call. That's right. That's right. That was the TV highlight. That was it, absolutely, <laughs> which is maybe it's the nadir of sports on TV for the past couple of years. I, I will say this. I caught the Tampa Bay game over, what was it, Thursday. I can't even remember who they played. All that was really very apparent was there was Tom Brady just livid uh, over penalties and his, his line just not getting the assignments right and everything. And one of the commenters mentioned that, He might not be missing a lot out of New England, but he's certainly missing the attention to detail and preparation that went into that and uh, probably might have taken that for granted. So, so yeah, we can I, I pretty will much give you count that. to four up here. We're good at counting to four. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a sheep shot. Uh, nice, nice. Well, besides watching the NFL and, and seeing where the Patriots are these days, Cheryl, what, what else have you been up to? Since I left FERC, I've been working – to build a portfolio of activities still in the energy space. I'm on the board of directors of the ISO New England, which has been great. I just started June 1 at a one-year fellowship. I'm a distinguished visiting fellow at the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy, focusing on how we adapt competitive markets and infrastructure to climate issues. And I've I've been gotten back involved in the community on a local community board, and I'm doing a lot of public speaking and guest lecturing. So I feel like I'm still connected with a lot of people I knew around the industry. Having said all that, um, today I'm just speaking for myself. That's one of the benefits of being out on the outside. (laughs) Roy and I thought it would be fun on today's podcast to take advantage of Cheryl's wisdom and play a little game called What Would Cheryl Do? or WWCD. Cheryl's always had terrific insights and perspectives and we got some hot issues as we mentioned and we thought it'd be fun just to you know see what Cheryl would do and how she would think and how to approach him. And the first one to start with and it may be an obvious place to start is, is carbon pricing. Uh, FERC had a lengthy technical conference on carbon pricing, went over nine hours uh, on September 30th. Personally, I thought it was a terrific discussion, and I know we got a lot of folks at FERC who listen to this podcast. Hats off to uh, Chairman Chatterjee and the commissioners, as well as the staff that helped put that together. I thought it was a really uh, outstanding conversation and a, you know, a great first step, if you will, uh, to uh, having some of these broader discussions about carbon in the regional markets. 
Uh, we know various RTOs are in various stages of thinking about carbon and carbon pricing. New York and New England are certainly ahead of PJM and MISO when it comes to this. Uh, Cheryl mentioned she's on the board of uh, New England ISO, but before we get maybe talking to maybe how the, R the ISO should be approaching it, you know, Cheryl, I'd love for you to go back, put on your perk hat, if you will, and having had the technical conference, having taken in all that terrific information, where do you think FERC goes next with this? And what would you do, perhaps, if you were there? Well, FERC has an item on the agenda for this Thursday's open meeting on the technical conference. I have zero inside information, of course, but I'm, if I had to guess, I'd guess they're going to ask some post-technical conference written questions. I do think it was a great conference. I think everyone did a great job pulling it together. I think they've started to build a good record on carbon pricing. I do observe, though, that at the conference, they heard almost exclusively from people who support carbon pricing. And I actually think the record could benefit from a second conference where people who support carbon pricing and people who support more of a command and control or another approach really debate the benefits and costs of how you get the GHG improvement in the markets, because I think that would really fill out the record. As to what they do with that record, do they do something affirmative or do they wait for proposals to come in from the different regional ISOs? I don't know, possibly they would do a notice of inquiry or some kind of policy statement, but I think more likely they're building a record that they'll refer to when the ISOs make proposals. Can I, can I ask a quick follow-up on that? Cheryl, this may be more common knowledge, but maybe you can give a little bit of insight. When they set the agenda for the technical conference, they're choosing the people who are on there. So was it by design to make it the speakers were mostly in support of carbon pricing? And if so, why would they have done that? I don't know the answer to that question. I just know that I read in the energy Twitterverse, uh -huh. um, many people who maybe had different views and would like to be part of the conversation. And I think it would be valuable to hear from some of them because I think we have to stay engaged in all working on how we adapt the markets for the future. You know, one of the more interesting aspects of that technical conference was the first panel that talked about first jurisdiction and you know, what they can and can and not do in this regard. And at least as my takeaway that there seemed to be some fairly broad agreement that if an ISO brought a proposal to FERC under section 205, that FERC would have the legal authority, if you will, to bless that and approve it. Obviously it will depend if that, prog <laughs> that program ultimately results in a just and reasonable rate, but do you generally align yourself up with that legal view on the matter? Well, I think I'm on record saying before that I think FERC has the authority under Section 205 to approve carbon pricing if there's a sufficient record that in the circumstances in the docket, whatever the region is, that will be the best way or that will produce a just and reasonable rate. It doesn't have to be the best way. It just has to be just and reasonable. And I think I was pleased to hear so much consensus on that at the conference. I think the question of whether FERC can do that affirmatively under Section 206 is a little bit of a harder question because then they have to first show that the existing rate is not just and reasonable, and then they have to substitute, there's a little bit of a higher bar because they have to first prove the existing rate is not just and reasonable, then substitute a just and reasonable rate. But I'm 
thinking this issue might come up more in proposals from the ISOs than affirmatively from FERC. Who knows? Yeah, and let's let's drill down that more, a little bit more deeply. Uh, Gordon Van Wheely, uh, ISO New England CEO. I, I read a Commonwealth Magazine article from last Friday, I believe it was, where he's talking about putting together a New England pro- proposal on net, uh, net carbon pricing. Uh, I was wondering if you could maybe shed some light on that. I mean, I know you're on the board, so maybe it's a little tricky spot for you to be in. But any 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 color you can provide on you know what New England may be working on that may eventually be presented to FERC. Well, I'll just give a little background on the situation up there. So the ISO New England stakeholders who operate as NEPOOL are engaged in a really interesting and pretty intensive process to look at different options for market structures to achieve the state's decarbonization goals. They've had different speakers come in to talk about carbon pricing, the forward clean energy market, the energy only market in Texas and so forth. Last week, at least I believe it was last week, I've lost my sense of time, but I believe last week, Gordon Van Wheely, the CEO of ISO New England, announced that ISO New England would do a deep analytical dive on two of the options that have come up in the course of that conference. And one is carbon pricing, specifically net carbon pricing. And they're also going to look at the forward clean energy market, which was discussed extensively by stakeholders. I don't believe the ISO has said they would propose either of those to FERC. I think they've said they're going to do a deep dive on those in connection with their stakeholders. I think the net carbon pricing is a particularly interesting proposal because as you know, if you introduce carbon valuation in a market, you're in essence internalizing the greenhouse gas externalities. So you're increasing the imputed cost of the fossil generation that has to bid in to pay for the carbon externalities when they bid in, which disadvantages them vis-a-vis generation or resources that don't produce greenhouse gas externalities. And once you do that, you have to figure out what to do with those revenues. If you remember the Waxman-Markey proposal, which was a carbon valuation proposal 2009, how, what you do with the money you get from valuing carbon. What net carbon pricing does is it rebates directly to the customers the imputed cost of the carbon on the fossil resources. So it's never collected in the first place. It's just more or less imputed in the market to affect the dispatch order. And that will moderate the price impact of carbon pricing for customers. Exactly how much will be determined in the modeling that the ISO is going to do, I assume, or at least as they set up the models. And also it allows the resources who, that don't generate greenhouse gases to keep the higher prices that might be set by the fossil resources, which of course is the whole idea. We're trying to solve for how do you get more money to the clean resources, but in a market compatible way, in a way that uses the market. And so it potentially has the effect of making sure the market achieves the carbon reduction in the most cost-effective way while making sure you don't increase the cost of customers any more than you need to. But it's really in the early stages, but I think it's a pretty interesting proposal. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thanks for those, those details. Um, any thoughts on how you would set the price of carbon under such a regime? I've read in the literature, really, there's the main way people are looking at it has been around some social cost of carbon valuation, which if memory serves was about $40 a ton, 
during the Obama administration when they were working on the Clean Power Plan. And then now the Council on Environmental Quality in the Trump administration has said, no, it's only $8 a ton because we just count the U.S. carbon. And then there's other studies out there that have it even higher than $40. Although one of my colleagues at Columbia, Dr. Noah Kaufman, has put out a paper about a month ago of how little you'd have to add to the market or the dispatch stack. Is there a different amount than the social cost of carbon? Can you just add as much as you need to change the dispatch order and not some externally derived valuation? What kind of addition would you need to change the model? And I thought that was an interesting paper. Oh, that is interesting. So he'd be sort of pegging it to market dynamics versus some, yes. you know, you esoteric know, if calculation. If your hmm. gas costs this much and your wind costs that much, how do you, ha- how much you have to add to make the wind come up first in the stack? Not like, you know, what's going to happen to the oceans at the equator and all the things that go into the right. big social cost of carbon model. Uh, that's interesting. I'll have to look up that paper. The, some of the states up there expressed trepidation about you know, running a carbon price through FERC because they would lose some jurisdiction and what have you. Any sense of how the states states will either respond to this proposal or be part of the discussion? And, and, and do you think you can get in a spot where the states could support something that ends up at FERC and in the wholesale tariff? Or is that to be determined? I don't speak for the states, but I think it's really important that they in New England and everywhere stay engaged in the discussion about the future of the markets and help to adapt the markets to accomplish the goals that the states have. And, you know, I think the states in New England have been engaged. As you know, of course, Reggie, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, has a what amounts to a carbon valuation model using a cap and trade that they have somehow worked out to be entirely state jurisdictional and FERC just approved the ISOs putting it in the cost stack when they run their models. And so there are other ways to do this, but I would certainly hope that the fact that it was going to be part of a FERC tariff wasn't an overriding barrier. One of the issues that kept reemerging during your tenure at FERC was the interface of state policies on federal wholesale markets and and how they interact. There's been a lot of controversy swirling around FERC's stance on the MOPR, the minimum offer price rule. PJM hasn't had a capacity auction since May 2018, and we are now less than 20 months away from the 2022-23 delivery year for which no generation has been secured yet. What would you do to bring some closure to that issue and put PJM back on the back on track for normalcy? First, I would note, as we're taping this on Monday, October 12th, and as we speak, FERC has the PJM MOPR docket on the open meeting agenda for this Thursday. So hopefully they'll act on the rehearing and compliance so PJM can move forward and set a date. As to what I would do substantively, I obviously didn't succeed in solving this problem while I was at FERC. I made no secret of the fact that I was not a fan of the 2018 order from which I dissented that 206 the PGM tariff and required a resource specific fixed resource requirement option. I thought it was thinly sketched out and would put 
PGM in a rather impossible position, which I think that part came true. But I respected that what FERC came up with in 2018 was an attempt to adapt the markets to the state policy initiatives, even though it wasn't how I would have done it. I think I would have required PJM to sit down and have a detailed process with its states and its stakeholders. As I said, I believe in my dissent. The December 2019 order in which FERC changed course and really abandoned the effort to adapt the market and just pressed hard on the gas pedal to plow through the state policies, I think set up a situation that's not sustainable. And I definitely don't think this is the end of the story. PJM needs to keep working with its states and its stakeholders to adapt its markets. They were set up to accomplish a purpose and they do what they're designed to do, which was really use auction processes to achieve reliability, at least cost. If climate change is a societal goal in so many of the states and perhaps at the federal level in the future, if we don't adapt the markets to those goals, unfortunately, the markets could become less relevant. And it's important in my mind that the states and the environmental community stay engaged in the markets and help to adapt them. I strongly believe the best way to get to the decarbonized future that we need to. And if we go our separate ways, we've really lost something. Yeah, and maybe in terms of framing that conversation, your your former colleague, Phil Moeller, used to say, or I think he was credited with saying it, that you know, FERC can be resource neutral, but they can't be reliability neutral. Do you see FERC moving away from that resource neutral posture as part of this conversation? I don't think you need to meet climate goals to be reliable, but I think for the markets to be sustainable, they need to be adapted to achieve both goals, at least in right now where the climate is being driven at the state level in the regions of the country where the states have passed laws requiring certain decarbonization levels. And if that were easy to do, perhaps it would have already been done. I do think that um, in terms of market design, carbon valuation in the market seems like the most accessible way to build decarbonization into the market, but it has been politically challenging, even in New York, where they've been working on it for three years. Some of the other ideas that have been floated are a little more complicated, but I don't think it's sustainable for FERC to say, no, we're just going to keep running the market this way, because that's going to drive the states to achieve their carbon goals off to the side. And I don't think that's best for the citizens. Yeah, one of the things that I've always sort of struggled with is in this debate, you know, from a big picture policy standpoint is, you know, we've regulated pollution pollutants from the power sector for decades, and it really has not you know, had all that much impact on the markets in terms of, you know, the economic efficiency of the markets and what have you. Yes, it's changed, you know, dispatch and, you know, added certain costs to certain certain producers, but whether it's like NOx or SOx or mercury or lead or particulate matter, what have you. Um, it seems like we're headed down a path where we're carving out a different route forward for carbon. And, and maybe it is because of the politics you point to and the struggles to, you, to get there. And I think we can all probably agree that the, the best and easiest way to solve this problem is, you know, to have a national carbon pricing mechanism in place, federally legislated, handled, you know, similarly to other pollutants. And maybe we'll get there. Maybe we won't. But uh, 
instead we're like sort of left with these less perfect solutions, uh, at least in my mind, uh, but, but still could work to your, to your point. Well, when we talk about climate change, frequently the adjective we apply to the front is global. And ideally a global problem in a perfect world would have a global solution, but at least a national solution. And I think if the federal government were treating carbon dioxide like they did sulfur dioxide and other pollutants where they set command and control limits for power plants, or even in the clean power plan where they set um, limits for regions, as I recall, the clean power plan, that would look more like the way the market takes in the pricing of externalities for sulfur dioxide and other pollutants, which, as you said, has worked seamlessly in the market. The difficulty is because for the last four years, the federal government has stepped completely out of this space and, in fact, pushed in the other direction to revitalize some of the most carbon-intensive resources. The states have stepped in, and they have not tended to regulate or legislate greenhouse gases in a market-friendly way. They have tended to either require the selection and customer funding of specific resources or require goals with no mechanism to get there out in the future. But if it were done, if we could internalize it at a federal level, then it would look like the other pollutants. I think for lots of reasons, a federal carbon policy would be better because the United States has vast resources, um, natural resources, technical resources, financial resources. And if we set a national goal, we could use the best way to get there across the entire United States, as many, many other countries and indeed the whole European Union are doing, but um, not currently being done at the federal level. On, on a continuum from most likely to least likely, where do you think that we are now in actually getting, attaining that national action? I mean, I have no crystal ball, but I think, spoiler alert, it's going to depend a lot on what happens in the election. Yeah. I think that kind of a perfect world in my mind would be for the United States to rejoin some kind of global accord like Paris and then pass consensus legislation setting a national target, even if it wasn't as far as some people wanted, but that was actually established at a national level. And if you structured it in any way like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, states could go further within certain constraints, mm -hmm. um, but you would have some national goal. If there's no legislation, then we get back into the EPA trying to regulate it um, as they did in the Obama administration. And even if that doesn't happen, if the new administration is able to repopulate the agencies, the EPA and FERC and CEQ and so forth, you could at least have the agencies try to be rowing in the same direction. I mean, as I said, the CEQ put out something that carbon dioxide is no longer $40 a ton, now it's 6 to $8 a ton. I mean, that obviously is not intended to support decarbonization. So you could have the agencies begin to make progress. But no question, legislation would be the best. Then it would define what was going on. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because I, I do think the politics of carbon are changing and we're seeing more and more examples of this. I mean, I even think the first technical conference uh, on carbon pricing is an example of the changing politics to a certain extent. I'm, you know, I think yes. 
there was very little chance of that happening in year one or two of the, this administration, but it's happening here in year four. And I think you're starting to see more and more Republicans feel comfortable talking and feel the need to talk about carbon and doing something. Well, there's also scope to agree on infrastructure improvements. And I was really happy to see in the Biden climate plan, there was a whole plank on economic redevelopment of communities whose um, population has kept the lights on for decades, the coal communities and so forth. I mean, there should be some scope to compromise. Um, I did a BBC radio interview on California a few weeks ago. And the young man who was interviewing me, just kept asking questions along the lines of, well, when Americans see these fires on TV, aren't they persuaded that climate change is a really big deal and they should do something? And then I found myself in the odd position of trying to explain climate skepticism Mm -hmm. and why there was a political divide in the United States, something for which I am not the best qualified to explain why someone doesn't believe in climate change. But I felt almost defensive of my federal citizens. (laughs) Um, Let's switch the conversation a little bit more specifically. We've been dancing around this all show here. And that is the nature of FERC relations and state relations. I mean, it, it, you're seeing in the carbon discussion, you know, is right in front of FERC in, in the MOPR discussions. You know, I have a quote here from New Jersey BPU President Joe Ferdaliso, and this was just last week when he was talking about FERC. He said, I don't think they're our friends right now. And FERC has done a lot, I got to say. I mean, FERC is always at NARUC meetings. FERC is out and about. But these are these are tough, and there is un, there is tension. There's always been tension, candidly, between states and FERC on policy issues. I mean, I was in the middle of the standard market design discussions uh, back in the day, and that was ultimately a a jurisdictional battle, if you will, between FERC and the states. And, you know, curious, Cheryl, you know, now that you've had a year off the commission, maybe to reflect upon it and think about it, you know, just if you could offer just maybe some general thoughts on FERC state relations, the challenges that they present, and then maybe what can we do to get things in a little bit more comfortable spot? Because FERC does have a role, and sometimes that role means saying no to states. And you did that several times when you were on the commission. There is a natural tension, and it plays out differently different times. For example, one element of tension right now is that we're seeing increasingly that resources, distributed resources at the distribution level, even behind the meter, can collectively perform in the same way as centralized resources at the wholesale level. And how do you reconcile state and federal regulation of those resources, something the commission is actively working on with order 2222 and so forth? I guess my first advice is that it's Sounds rather simplistic, but I think it's important that the FERC commissioners have a relationship with the state commissioners. I think it's important that they go to NARUC and as many of the regional regulatory meetings as they can, and not just pop in and make a speech and shake a couple hands and leave, but actually stay and go to the meetings and go to the receptions, because you have to work at it constantly, because the state regulators keep changing, as to some extent do the FERC regulators. Then when something comes up, you at least have a relationship that you know the person in, you know, Idaho when we had the PURPA disputes with Idaho, or you know the person in Kentucky when we had the Clean Power Plan disputes, because you've actually sat across the table from them and talked about things. Right now, as we've already talked about, some of the federal state tension is coming from the fact that climate is being regulated at the state level. And the federal markets have to respond. 
in the Obama administration, to some extent, it was the exact opposite. The Obama EPA was putting out mercury and air toxics in clean air and the clean power plan. And the states were saying, no, we can't go that fast. We can't, you're, that's unrealistic. And Phil Moeller and I worked with a bipartisan group of state regulators to have a task force over several years to really dig into the issues in the different regions to at least help us see eye to eye, which led to the reliability backstop in the mercury and air toxics and the clean power plan. I do think there's no substitute for knowing the people and just continuing to actually engage. The grid is undergoing a pretty major transition right now. We've got costs of wind and solar going down significantly. Storage resources keep getting better and longer. Coal seems to be fading out of markets for economic reasons. If you read Daniel Jurgen's recent new book, you'll see that cheap, abundant gas continues to rewrite the rules of the market. And prices, at least in PJM, are at historic lows. Put yourself in the key position to keep that momentum going. Where are you and what are you doing to continue the transition while keeping prices at the current levels? Well, first of all, I would say, I don't think the goal is to keep prices at the current level. The goal is to keep prices at a just and reasonable level to sustain reliability given the new resource mix. And I think everyone knows the resource mix is changing as we move forward. It's continuing to change as it's changed already. So one part of that is we've already talked a lot about the various state climate goals, how to structure the markets to successfully introduce more variable renewable resources and how the markets have to be adapted to do that. That's one big challenge. Beyond the markets, those new resources are going to need infrastructure, transmission, and more regional sharing of resources, ideally among different time zones, to help with the variability of the resources. That's something we're seeing out in the energy imbalance market in the West. And that's going to require work to get that transmission and indeed to get the resources themselves built. Uh, one thing I've noted frequently is that even people who politically support green energy don't necessarily support a transmission line going near them or a wind farm that they can see. And so that we have a long way to go to get from where we are now in the resource mix to some of the targets that have been set. That's just on the renewable side. I think the second big challenge is the pricing and the market structures need to sustain the balancing resources, the dispatchable, controllable resources that a grid operator is going to need when the uh, sun goes down or the wind stops blowing. And right now, that's largely natural gas generation. In the future, it might be more storage, but you're going to need balancing resources. And if these resources are primarily called on, you know, when you're in the neck of the duck and the sun is setting and you're in that evening peak, they're not going to make it up on volume if they haven't been running much in what used to be the peak. So you're going to have to find a different way of making sure you keep those resources in the fleet. And that's what capacity markets were set up for, to pay an insurance price to things you're going to need to keep the lights on, even if they're not used all the time. So that's one mechanism. Or we're seeing increasingly people talking about reserve markets. ISO New England has a proposal pending at FERC. The 
energy security improvements to set up new day ahead reserve markets to make sure they pay for enough resources to have balancing resources when they're energy constrained. And we might see certainly other proposals as well. Thirdly, I think we're going to see a lot of changes in how we operate the markets and the regional grids because of the growth in variable resources. I mean, when I came into the industry in 1986, someone explained to me the dispatch stack, like we take the hydro first, then we take the nuclear, then we take the coal, and then we just use the oil on top of that. And it's pretty much like that every day. Well, that's not what the dispatch stack looks like anymore. And there's going to be changes in the way we operate the grid. Secondly, the growth of distributed resources are going to require changes in the way we operate. And finally, I think we'll see more demand-side responsiveness to both reliability and price. And all of that is going to change the way the grid operators keep the lights on. All right. Well, that was terrific. There was a lot to unpack there. Let's maybe talk about this idea of balancing um, resources, because I think that's really key. And I thought you were headed in the direction of saying we need to do it through the capacity market, but then you said maybe we could do it through the reserve market. Is, 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 is it one? Is it other? Is it both? Any, any thoughts on how we get there? Well, I don't think it's an either or, but I think we need to look at what we need the resources to do and making sure that the markets collectively are paying enough revenues to keep those resources online and available when they're needed to serve customers. There's obviously out-of-market ways to do that, but I, I don't think anyone's first choice is, oh, let's have a lot of reliability must-run contracts and then try to run a market off to the side. I think the goal is to design the markets to both compensate the variable renewable resources, compensate the balancing resources, be it pump storage, gas generation or other resources and compensate the resources you need for ancillary services. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I I think you're definitely right that this is a conversation that, you know, is definitely coming our way, certainly in in PJM. It was brought into sharp relief in California in August when they had a couple days of rolling blackouts because part of the driver was not having enough of the balancing resources for the evening ramp. And um, I wrote a little op-ed in which I said that California has done a better job closing the things they don't like than promptly opening the new things that they need. And, but I think that's a lesson to be learned everywhere that we need to make sure we have the resources available for the entire portfolio even in when you have a very heavy renewable penetration. Yeah, and I mean, that's sort of like the question that we're all going to have to grapple with. You know, these intermittent resources, they're, they're terrific energy resources when the wind's blowing and the sun's shining, but they have challenges on the capacity side because, you know, they're not always there at peak. So that's that sort of equation that the reliability engineers need to, to figure out. And then as policymakers, making sure the tools are in place to make sure there's sufficient amount of those resources Yes, and we might change how we look at peak and think of peak as when the behind the meter solar and batteries are ebbing, I'm using that word right, that's the new peak. Cheryl, you mentioned early on in your response there that the goal is not necessarily to keep prices at their current level, but to keep them just and reasonable. Was was that just sort of like a a clarification of the concept or were you implying that prices might go up? 
I wasn't meaning to imply the trajectory of future prices, but I was kind of objecting to the goal that was implied in the question, which was to make sure they stay as they are now. I think there's a lot of well-founded belief that energy prices will go down as we get a very heavy penetration of zero marginal cost resources. But when resources are needed, then those prices should go up to send a signal for new investments. So I, I don't think it's trajectory clearly in one direction or the other. I just think we'll see different price dynamics. Yeah, and I'm glad Rory asked that question because that's one of the things that struck me that I haven't really thought much about, and that is you know, resetting consumer expectations in this transition of the grid of the future because I think that's going to be very, very important in how we go about doing that. I mean, I'll never forget, I was testifying in Maryland. This was maybe probably 15 years ago, and I was – explaining how the goal of markets was to produce a competitive price. And I got lectured that, no, the goal of market should be to produce the lowest price. Um, and, you know, there, there is a difference there that needs to be understood to, to, to understand markets. But any thoughts on how we go about, maybe redefining is too strong a word, but it, it seems to me that consumer expectations in this transition are important and they need to be managed. Well, the goal has been, in my view, for the market to generate the lowest price that's consistent with the reliability requirements. And if we incorporate climate objectives, it'll be the lowest price consistent with the climate objectives and reliability requirements. It's the market does what it's set up to do. And I think what has been politically challenging is more the concept of price variability, of a price spike when resources are low, that's sending an investment signal. I mentioned in passing the energy-only market in Texas, something I've studied a lot more since I left FERC because it was not regulated, is not regulated by FERC. And it exists in an environment of willingness to let prices spike very high when they need to. And the expectation that customers will hedge themselves and if they don't, it's their responsibility. That environment has not existed in other political economies. I mean, California has not even taken advantage of FERC raising the price cap from 1,000 to 2,000. It's still 1,000. And in a functioning market, the prices will go up if there's a resource constraint and that will send the signal that more is needed. And that's been sometimes a little difficult. It's the spikiness, I think, not so much the stable net price. Let's take a couple steps back though and just talk about FERC in general, because we had both Chairman Chatterjee and Commissioner Glick on this podcast in recent months, and they were both terrific guests. We had a lot of fun with with both of them. And it was kind of clear to me that, you know, they both were very comfortable talking openly about their relationship. Uh, They both seem to have great personal affinity for each other, Uh, but they seem to fight uh, a lot. And there's disagreements that are very open and maybe perhaps more energetic than we've seen in the past at FERC. And, you know, certainly during your tenure at FERC, Commissioner, you, you agreed and disagreed with the majority, but you did so with rhetoric that maybe wasn't as fiery than what we're seeing uh, right now. And uh, my question for you is, if you could just talk about, you know, the relationships between the commissioners at FERC, I'm not necessarily asking you to comment on that relationship, but just, you know, how do you get along with other commissioners? And, you know, should we be you know, concerned about this elevation of rhetoric? I know at one point you were expressing some current concerns about partisanship creeping in 
to some FERC, um, you know, decisions and processes. Can you just talk about, like I said, because we're really fascinated just by the dynamics between, you know, commissioners in general, but maybe this FERC specifically. Well, of course, I can only speak intelligently or try to speak intelligently about when I was there, but I would agree with you that the commissioners respect each other and have good personal relationships and have one-on-one -on -one meetings and have moderated lunches where they only talk about sports and their kids um, and not energy issues. So I don't think it's a lack of personal respect, but I, I have been concerned, including when I was at FERC, about the increasing pattern of party line votes on certain issues. By no means everything, most votes are still unanimous, but on some significant policy issues, we've seen certainly in the last few years more votes along party lines. And I don't think that's good for the commission because first of all, it could lead to policy changes that zig and zag uh, not to pick on the Federal Communications Commission, you know, but they'll have one administration and they'll go for net neutrality. Then they'll say, no, no net neutrality because they're, most of their votes are party line votes. And I think it, policies are more sustainable if they're bipartisan, like Order 888, Order 1000, Order 745, all had bipartisan support. And I think it also undercuts the credibility of FERC as a, you know, technocratic, independent, bipartisan regulator. At only a couple weeks after I left, the commission voted out a pretty major a proposal for a pretty major overhaul of PURPA, changing something that had been in place for decades along party lines. And I think they would have been better served getting some kind of consensus overhaul that was maybe less dramatic, but in my view, more sustainable. As far as the tone of the disagreement, well, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was sometimes snarky in my dissents, but I tried as hard as I could to keep them to an explanation of why I had a different interpretation of the law or in what respect I saw the facts in the record differently. And I tried not to impute intent to the other side of the issue. They're doing this just to help X resources or they're doing this for Y reason. And I have seen examples on both sides where people impute bad intent to each other. And I don't think that's the best way to go. I tried not to do it. I didn't like it when people imputed bad intent to me. And I tried not to do it in my separate statements. You know, if there are any regulators out there listening to this podcast, take that advice to heart about imputing intent to your colleagues. I think that is really sound advice. And I see that at the state level, you know, as well from time to time. And, you know, yes, I think it's always best when commissioners assume that their colleagues are trying to, to do, do their best job that they possibly can. So I think that's, uh, we're not in the advice section yet, Rory, but I think that's And congressmen too, if I'm going big. That's right. Yeah. No, our presidential candidates, right? You know what I mean? We can go big, really big on that. So I, I think it's just a, some great, great words of wisdom there. Well, this is the section of our show that we love getting to. It's where we just fire questions at you so fast that you can only respond with the first thing that comes to mind. So let's just start for audience's benefit. You're a major New England Patriots fan. You were also on the commission with Commissioner Powelson, an unabashed Philadelphia Eagles fan. 
when the Eagles and the Patriots played each other in the Super Bowl, how annoying was Commissioner Powelson when the Eagles won? Well, Commissioner Powelson was always annoying. It was like having an, in, an in-house little brother to tease me. And I already have a real little brother to tease me. Um, and he was a big teaser. But when the Eagles won, I didn't begrudge him his gloating because he's a true fan. In-house little brother. I like that. So, that's terrific. All right. So we talked about the Patriots. Do you have a favorite Patriots cheating scandal? Was it the flake gate? Favorite? Was it gates? <laughs> Was it, you know, breaking oh. the headsets when they're playing the Steelers? Which, which one's your personal favorite? Well, favorite is a misnomer, but the one that bothered me the most was deflate gate. I mean, if they did it, and of course they've never admitted, it was really Bush League. And there was so much histrionics and theatricality around it. My goodness. I'm glad it's somewhat receded into the past. Let me tack on there. And where does the Red Sox cheating scandal slot in? Oh, that was just, I mean, I thought that was terrible. I really like Alex Cora and I was just really disappointed. And between having to fire the coach and then trading Mookie Betts, this has not been an easy year to be a Red Sox fan. Uh, particularly watching how good he's been in L.A. this yes. past season. Not since the Roger Clemens trade. I don't know. What was the last worst trade? There's been a lot of them, but, uh, <laughs> but that was not good. Whom do you consider a role model in the industry? Well, if I could state two, as a regulator, I would say my role model was Betsy Moeller. I, I've thought often, having served on FERC, Betsy came in with a brand new commission, joined her in 1993 after President Clinton was elected. And three years later, they voted out order number 888, which has just fundamentally changed the industry and has lasted and been upheld all these years. And I think she did a superb job of working with her colleagues, working with FERC staff, working with the Hill to keep them in the stable so they wouldn't have a repeat of standard market design, working with industry by listening to the stranded cost issues to know how far to go and make it sustainable. And I think sometimes the commission has tried to go too far and it's not sustainable or just not been ambitious enough. And I think order 888 is a wonderful example of doing it right. On the kind of management side, Definitely my role model is John Rowe, who I worked with when he was the CEO of New England Electric from, I believe it was 1988 to 1997. And I've said frequently that most of what I think I know about leadership, I learned from him. Um, He always said that leadership was about making everybody in an organization feel like what they did was more important because it was done collectively, given that line of sight to what each person did to the collective goals of the whole. And he also used to say, never be afraid to take a chance on someone you think can do a job like he took a chance on me. And I've really tried to follow that right up to the present day. So what, what do you miss about FERC? And, and then conversely, what don't you miss? Well, I think definitely what I miss most is the people, the people in my office, my colleagues, all the wonderful FERC staff, and all the people in the energy industry that I got to interact with all the time at NARUC and NERC and all the meetings I went to. I'm a people person, and I really miss those interactions. 
I mean, honestly, I also miss having the responsibility and the authority to feel like I could help be a part of deciding important issues. I certainly didn't always get it right, but I always tried and it was a thrill. And I really like what I'm doing now, but that doesn't mean I can't miss what I was doing before. And, and what don't you miss? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I think the thing I don't miss is the bureaucracy. Uh-huh. The endless FOIA requests that I was going through my email for, the financial filings, all the paperwork you had to do to keep up your, what do they call it, clearance, your security clearance. Just I don't have the administrative support I had when I was in an agency, but I, I don't miss the bureaucracy. You know, you hear that a lot from former FERC commissioners, and I don't think maybe folks totally appreciate some of the, you know, sort of personal burdens that come up, you know, with the position in terms of, like you said, filling out those FOIA requests, the financial disclosures. I mean, I remember you know, talking to Tony Clark about his commuting patterns just to get to the office. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's some pretty significant personal burdens that a lot of folks don't see or appreciate. And agonizing anytime anyone offered you a glass of wine or a half a tuna fish sandwich, you know, did I put this in? Did I get a, do I have a piece of paper saying I can go to this reception? I mean, I'm not going to sell my vote for a tuna fish sandwich anyway. <laughs> but, That's right. But I mean, that, but you tried to follow the rules. I tried religiously to follow the rules because they were there for a reason. Right. But, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it's very, I mean, you know, splitting a cab from the airport is not, I mean, for most people, that's an easy thing, right? At FERC or any state or many state agencies, that's a real challenge. Yeah. Well, I mean, I used to just always hand a $20 bill to someone. And now with its Uber, it's become more complicated than to say, I'll get the next one on my Uber, et cetera. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I definitely, I'm not trivializing all those laws. They're there for a reason, but that's a part of being in government I don't miss. Yeah, amen. If amen. we ever go to an airport again, you can pay for my cab, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. That's fair. That's fair. And I'll gladly do that. So, um, you know, thinking, speaking of the fun side of being a commissioner, though, let's talk about uh, FIDO and the, the NARUC meetings. And now FIDO, FIDO is a, for those of you who aren't aware, that's an annual tradition that many of us go to as part of the NARUC DC meetings. But now FIDO has closed doors in DC and we're going to need to find a new place. Cheryl, any suggestions on where we can go? That was one of my favorite parts of NARUC for sure. It was the night before it ended, I believe. And it was just people getting together to just talk. No agenda, no tables, just talking. I think anywhere we can gather where they will hand me a dirty vodka martini in a cold glass would be idyllic for me. Okay, note to self, look for that place. Yeah. That could be any place once they open, right? So now it's time for our favorite section of the show in which we offer unsolicited advice to someone who we think really needs it. Cheryl, you have two minutes to level one-on-one with anyone, anywhere, on anything you think he or she needs to hear who are you going with and what are you saying? Well, I'm going to give more general advice to people in government on the Hill, in the agencies like FERC. I hope right now we're on the brink of a change in presidential administration, maybe in the Senate, who knows, that'll change the balance of power in the agencies as well, like FERC. And I hope the incoming majority on the Hill and at FERC and other agencies We'll take a hot second and think about how they're going to run things going forward. I think we've just gotten to a difficult place in our country in terms of partisanship, using whatever, whatever you can do that you have the votes for, which we're seeing in 
the Senate this week, um, and not trying to find a solution with the other side. And it's going to take both sides to change this, but the party in the majority has to take the lead, I think, no matter what stuff has gone on the last five, four years. And I just think our country will be better for it if we can get back to compromising on solutions. And in our specific space, we know we have to work with people who disagree. If we're going to adapt the markets, if we're going to build the infrastructure we need, if we're going to make the adjustment to um, incorporate climate change in our energy system, it's going to require different kinds of communication than we've had up till now. So I would think we should use what's going to happen next month as an opportunity to just take a breath and maybe get someplace different. Glenn, you're never short on advice. What do you got this month? (laughs) Yeah, this month I got Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. And my specific plea to Governor DeWine is to show a little leadership, uh, particularly as it relates to House Bill 6, the controversial law that was signed by you into law last July. Since that time, uh, there's been a whole host of alleged allegations in and around the passage of House Bill 6. Uh, amounting to you know s- several tens of millions of dollars being flowed, perhaps illegally, to support campaigns of certain candidates, as well as the issue in general. But I think it's widely accepted in Ohio that House Bill Six uh, ha- was was passed in a shroud of controversy and scandal. The reason I ask for your advice or the reason I'm reaching out specifically to you to give advice, Governor, is it's time for some gubernatorial leadership. The House and Senate are struggling in Ohio to find a way to appropriately repeal House Bill 6. You even have called for the repeal itself. You called House Bill 6 terrible and the process that was used to develop it unacceptable. It's time for you to get the legislative leaders in the room forge a deal to the point that Cheryl just made about getting compromise and getting compromise done for the betterment of your constituents. So Governor DeWine, if you're listening, please show some leadership, get those folks in a room, hammer out a deal so they can come back after the election and get an appropriate repeal in place for House Bill 6. It's time to get it done. All right. I'm going to forego my two minutes this month in the interest of time, because while we are called the GT Power Hour, uh, we pride ourselves on never actually taking the full hour. And we are almost out of clock time today. So I will save those two minutes talking about last thoughts. First of all, Cheryl, thank you again for joining us today. Do you have any last thoughts before you go? Well, this isn't really a thought. It's more of a uh salutation, but I don't know who your listeners are, but I assume I know many of them. And just, I miss being with those folks. And um, I hope everyone stays safe and stays healthy till we can meet again on the other side of this. And Glenn, how about you? Anything? No, thank you, Cheryl. As always, terrific conversation, terrific thoughts. It's always a pleasure to, to, to spend time with you, even virtually like this. And I too look forward to the day when we can all get together in person under better circumstances. And uh, hopefully that's to celebrate another Super Bowl championship from the (laughs) NFC East, but I'm not going to hold my breath. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, It might be a while. I'm not sure that's that's on the horizon anytime soon. At minimum, we want to get the the Lombardi Trophy in PJM. How about that? Can we agree to that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's not the Browns. Wow, man. I don't think ISO New England wants to become part of PJM. We're all champions now. Wow. (laughs) 
Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that, until next time, be excellent to each other. See you Thanks next time. Thanks very much. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.